Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we are going to start with breaking news in our world lead. President Biden, you just saw him there finishing addressing U.S. troops, service members stationed in the United Kingdom as President Biden kicks off his first international trip, a high-stakes one that will culminate with one of the biggest meetings of his career, face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Biden begins with four days at the summit of fellow wealthy democracies, what's called the G7. Then the president heads to Brussels for two separate events, one with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, a collective defense alliance of 30 North American and European countries, and then a summit with leaders of the European Union. All of this is an effort to unite the United States and its closest allies in Biden's mission to stem Russia's nefarious ways before meeting with Putin. That will be in Geneva, Switzerland. The timing here could not be more urgent. President Biden says he plans to bring up the slew of cyber hacks perpetrated, intelligence officials say, by bad actors in Russia against American companies with Putin. Biden will bring that up with Putin. As Biden's energy secretary has warned, these hackers right now have the ability to shut down the U.S. power grid if they so desire. Let's get straight to CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly. He's in Falmouth, England. Phil, the White House just just previewed Biden's conversation with Putin. Uh, What should we expect? You know, I think the White House has been very clear that this is expected to be a direct conversation. This is expected to be a moment where the president lays out very clearly what the U.S. priorities are, but perhaps more importantly, what potential repercussions may come. Jake, you mentioned, obviously, the ransomware attacks that have occurred from criminal syndicates inside Russia, but also the state-sponsored attack, uh, the solar winds attack that has infiltrated multiple different government agencies. The U.S. has already imposed sanctions related to that, but the president is expected to lay out further costs that the U.S would impose uh, directly to President Putin. And this is all part uh, of a plan that the U.S. officials have laid out very clearly heading into this meeting, that the president, even though some of his advisors were wary of sitting down directly with President Putin, believes this is something that has to happen, that face-to-face matters, particularly with somebody who runs his country and runs his own foreign policy the way Vladimir Putin does, a very complex relationship, a very complex leader, one that uh, President Biden, who met with with President Putin 10 years ago as vice president, believes he can best manage face-to-face. But, Jake, they've made very clear the president will be direct. The president is not going to him and haw or try and tinker around the edges. He wants President Putin to know exactly where he stands, where the U.S. stands, and what will occur if President Putin continues some of the actions that he's gone through over the course of the last, not just several months, but several years. And, Jake, one final thing that I think is important in talking to the president's national security advisors, and you laid it out in your lead-in, this meeting isn't happening in isolation. This meeting was very carefully calibrated to 
happen after these meetings with long-held U.S. alliances, with kind of the key stakeholders, Western countries that were formed in groups, uh, and particularly in the case of NATO, to push back against Russia. The president wants to show a, uni a united front, show a reinvigorated Western front as he heads into that meeting, a show of strength that U.S. officials believe will help him as he sits down with a leader that very often is unpredictable, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly in England covering uh, the president's trip for us. Thank you so much. And let's let's pick up with our panel here where uh, Phil just left off, uh, getting everybody on the same page. First, the G7 with six other countries, then with NATO with 29 other countries, then with the European Union. How important is that for Biden just to get everybody on the same page so he can then meet with Putin? Hugely important. And it was really notable in that speech you just gave, Jake, uh, that he laid down some of the markers and, and gave a warning. Uh, it was not just the, the sub substance of what he said, but the timing of what he says, warned that there the U.S. will respond uh, if in any, any way the uh, Russians uh, have aggression against the U.S. or any kind of democracy and that there will be consequences for that. And he also talked really emphatically about the importance of alliances. And this is maybe boilerplate language for a U.S. president, but not up against what we saw for the past four years. And he was trying to really clearly make a break from that ahead of these meetings. And we can't really we can't yeah. overemphasize the threat here in a way, because, I mean, you had the FBI director last week mm -hmm. compare the cyber threat to 9-11. The energy secretary told me on Sunday uh, that these bad actors in Russia, these hackers, have the power to shut down the U.S. power grid right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, not only a clear threat, but it almost seems as if it's coming out of nowhere. I think if people were just sort of waking up today, they might say, wow, how did we get to this point? And it's because for years uh, there's not been as much attention to what that the nature of that threat was. And in order to combat that, I think the Biden administration recognizes that they need to have a pretty hard line uh, uh, on Putin, but they also need their allies together. I mean, you know, for the last four years, as Dana just said, uh, the the series of events here for a trip like this would be, uh, you know, criticize your allies first, insist on more money, and then pivot to, uh, you know, our shared adversaries. And that is what the and Biden wasn't administration necessarily one of them. and Russia was not necessarily <laughs> yeah. one of them. So it, it's a complete change of tactic uh, because the threat is so diffuse now. Cyber threats are not as easy, I think, for some people to conceptualize as other threats, and it requires a shared and a joint effort to combat it. And, and Josh Rogan, uh, the current U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, appointed by Trump, a holdover in the job right now, he privately warned lawmakers uh, of his concerns that the Biden administration risks making the same mistake of previous administrations uh, if they don't go into this meeting with clear eyes about the threat. Um, Biden has talked tough about uh, Putin in the past. What, what do you think? You know, the U.S.-Russia relationship is complex. We have good aspects and bad aspects. It's tough to manage. The problem with the Trump administration is that it was a mess, that Trump was saying one thing and the, the bureaucracy was saying another thing. So now they have a chance to get on the same page. So that means being tough but also having a path towards negotiation on the things they care about. Iran, climate change, Afghanistan, you name it, arms control. So that's complex. That's the stuff of diplomacy uh, that, that we haven't been doing. So just identifying the problem is good. Democracies versus autocracies. Everybody can understand that. That's all well and good. But now can we walk and chew gum? Can we be tough with Putin and also advance our interests where they overlap? 
That's what's going on behind the scenes. They don't know. The Biden people don't know if Putin is willing to go back to that kind of frenemies relationship where we were tough in public, but in private, we work on stuff. And the Russians don't know if the Biden team is willing to do that either. So that's the test. That's what we'll know coming out of this. Is it just going to be tough, tough, tough? Or are we going to have a complex relationship with an important country that we need to deal with on the world stage in order to protect ourselves? There are things, Dana, that uh, President Biden and his administration have done uh, that Russia hawks have been disappointed by. Uh, lifting the sanctions related to, to Nord Stream, not informing the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, uh, that he was going to do that, um, and a number of other things. Now, it's early yet. We don't know what he's going to do, but there, I know plenty of Russia hawks who had hopes for Biden that are already disappointed, who think that he is giving Russia rewards before there has been any uh, reason to reward them. That's right, especially given the rhetoric that we heard from candidate Joe Biden, because Russia was such a political hot potato because Donald Trump right. and everything that we know that happened uh, with Russia, that he was he, Joe Biden was so aggressive about saying how tough he would be on Russia and that because of his 36 years in the Senate and his experience, eight years as vice president, they understood Russia and, and, and uh, that they would really... Uh, be punished, that he set up the Biden administration to be more hawkish, as you said. And then he got in there and he's a little bit more, you know, real politic in terms of his approach, because he does understand the complexities that Campaigning you just laid out. Than governing. Yeah. Okay. And he has a responsibility and they have an agenda and they need Putin to work with it. Is that possible? Can they come to an agreement on Syria? Well, that would be good for Syria, good for Russia and the United States, but the relationship might be too broken to fix. So I think they should do both. We should walk and chew gum. We should work with them and be tough with them, stand it up to them, and then try to negotiate with them. Uh, that's what we haven't had. We haven't had competence in our diplomacy. And can they bring back that competence? I think it remains to be seen. I think a lot of this is going to depend on Putin, though. I mean, when Biden says he wants a stable and predictable relationship, the question is, can you have a stable and predictable relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin, who literally tries to troll uh, Joe Biden at every turn, um, uh, saying things publicly that he knows are, are uh, you know, as far as the January 6th uh, insurrection, for example, downplaying that, but then on well, also that, acting as if those are the persecuted uh, people, right, people being right. persecuted for well, the political Well, Navalny, right. right? And 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 that's a really good point because I think that what you're what. What it seems that Putin is doing right now is really pushing the envelope on these cyber attacks, on how he's dealing with dissidents internally. And it's challenging the premise that this can be a, a stable relationship, let alone one that is predictable. The Biden administration may want that, but Putin is uh, sees an opening here to, it seems, to act out. And the question is, can they get him back to the table in a reasonable way? And, and maybe the cat is out of the bag. I mean, he's had four years of being able to really do kind of what he wants on the world stage. It, it's a little hard to put that genie back in the bottle. If Putin does not listen to President Biden and the next hacking attack in the U.S. is even worse than solar winds or JBS or Colonial Pipeline, do you think that it will seem that... President Biden has failed? Well, it's not over. He'll, he will be failing, but the, he's got four years. There are a number of measures they can take, uh, both positive and negative, carrots and sticks, you know, sanctions and also helping U.S. companies 
protect themselves. I mean, we have to clean up our own shop before we point fingers elsewhere. And there's always going to be criminals. Putin's always going to be a bad guy. He's always going to be a killer. So we have to shore up our own systems to make sure that, he, that it, they're not ripe for this kind of stealing. But yes, I think Abby is exactly right. If Putin doesn't want to play ball, then fine. We're going to have four years of increasing tensions. And that, if that's the game he wants to play, then that's the game we can play. And we have the high ground. We are the United States of America. But what, we're, what Biden is trying to do is convince the rest of the world that this new uh, um, um, return to normalcy and diplomacy is not just a temporary thing, that America is back. But what the Europeans are saying is, like, is America back? Because Biden can't make any promises that go beyond January 2025. And, Dana, we've talked about this. Joe Biden's public persona, uh, aided, in fact, by Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, campaign, mm -hmm. is this befuddled old man who doesn't even know where he's going. The, the truth of the matter is... Uh, he is a tough guy, and I don't necessarily mean that even as a compliment. I mean, he can he, he's a he is a brass knuckles politico. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this is not the perception yeah. of him out there. But we'll see if he brings that to bear with Putin. And he has he has uh, exhibited that toughness in and brashness, frankly, in meetings when he was vice president. He talks about it, about he's, how he, he has stormed out of meetings. That is not exactly the kind of characteristic that one would think of when they think of, you know, frankly, the Uncle Joe that he tries to put forward uh, on the domestic stage. But that is him. And I think the point that, that all of you have made is really important, that we have to continue to juxtapose where we are now versus where we, are for, where we were for four years, where Vladimir Putin felt in a lot of ways, very justifiably, that he could play the president of the United States like a fiddle. He can't do that now for one reason and one reason only, and perhaps there are more, but at least the baseline is because Biden has the experience. Biden has the understanding uh, of geopolitics yeah. that his predecessor didn't have. We'll see if he has the medal, though, uh, it's an open to question. be determined. Uh, Dana Bash, Abby Phillip, uh, Josh Rogan, good to see you again in person. It's been a long time. President Biden hit with a left hook for trying to reach out to the right. Why some progressives are fed up after infrastructure talks crumble. And the vice president's shaking off a few hits she took for not visiting the border on her trip south. CNN did go to the border. And what we found there in terms of pain and heartache, well, it's shocking. Stay with us. In our politics lead, progressives are fed up after President Biden scrapped one bipartisan infrastructure negotiation to move on to another bipartisan infrastructure negotiation. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who thinks that Democrats need to ultimately go it alone, she called the move to now defer to this 10-member group of Senate Republicans and Democrats, quote, foolish. And the Congresswoman is not alone. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles. Ryan, let's start with what's on the table and why these progressives are frustrated. Well, the reason they're frustrated, Jake, is because they, they're concerned that the Democrats that are a part of these conversations are basically just giving up too much uh, to Republicans, including taking out key provisions of the broader infrastructure plan related to things like climate change and also not giving enough when it comes to tax increases, including corporate tax increases and the estate tax, things along those lines. Now, none of these uh, negotiations are solid by any stretch of the imagination. It's just the beginning of a conversation. But the problem for both Republicans and Democrats is that you have to find enough votes to pass something. And that's why this group is meeting. And I caught up with Jean Shaheen. She is a Democrat from New Hampshire. Uh, she said that uh, everybody on the outside needs to calm down and let this process play out because they are making progress. Take a listen. 
have come to some agreement on various um, revenue streams that we think we could support. So I think I think there's the ability to get some agreement on revenue as well as expenditures, but we've got to we've got to negotiate that. And the other thing Shaheen told me is that it's time for the White House to weigh in on this as well. And if the White House were to agree to this, that a lot of Democrats would come along and join the party as well. Jake, again, this comes to just what you can get enough votes to pass. Right now, there's no tangible proposal on the table. And until that happens, it's difficult to forecast what could come next. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Let's discuss. Let me start with you, former Congresswoman Mia Love. Uh, there are five Senate Republicans in this new group of 10 that's negotiating. But that's those five. That's only half the number the Democrats need to overcome a, a filibuster. The Republican whip Senator John Thune has already said that this group can't go far beyond where Senator Capito was and still get Republican votes. Are you optimistic about these talks? I actually think it's the smart thing to do. I don't think it's the foolish thing to do. And I agree with Senator Shaheen, where um, she states that everybody really should come down and let the process take its course. This is how you get bipartisan uh, bills through. Uh, Mitt Romney has wanted to work with the COVID bill. He begged and said, look, I want to be able to do some of these things and I want to be able to get there and vote so we don't have to through, do it through budget um, reconciliation. And I'm glad that he's actually at the table. And if they push Republicans out on this bill, I think it's going to lose all, they're going to lose all good faith when it comes to Republicans on other bills that they want to work on. If they don't do it this time, they're going to have to plan on budget reconciliations for a lot of the other bills that they're going to try and push through. Right. You can only do it for budgetary bills, though, of course, for expenditure bills. That's the the process by which you only need 50 votes or 51, rather, with the vice president uh, breaking the tie. Uh, Former Congressman uh, Joe Kennedy your home Commonwealth Senator, Elizabeth Warren, she's already saying that it's time to move forward without Republicans. Do you agree? Yeah, Jake, look, I think people are frustrated. And I think Mia's right here that part of this is the process playing out. But the bottom line is Democrats need the votes. And there's two members of that group that are Senators Manchin and Cinema, amongst others that want to give this another shot. But look, I there's an awful lot that a Biden administration wants to do that uh, Democrats in both the House and the Senate want to do. And that I think, quite candidly, our country needs from infrastructure investments and democracy reforms and efforts to actually make our country stronger, fairer, our economy uh, more resilient. Uh, the longer this takes, um, that that window starts to, to close. Um, so I think the administration, you got to do what you got to do in order to get the votes. I hope Republicans are willing to to actually come to the table and get, just as you pointed out, 10 instead of five. Um, I remain skeptical. Yeah. I think plenty of others do, too. Uh, so, Congresswoman, uh, Senators Mitt Romney and Rob Portman from Utah and Ohio, they're, they're part of this group. They're negotiating. But they also say they're not going to agree to any tax increases to pay for the infrastructure deal. Presumably, that means not even... Uh, to Biden's proposal of a 15% minimum corporate tax, just asking, make, asking companies to make sure they, they spend at least 15% uh, on uh, corporate taxes. Um, I mean, how can you feel optimistic when, when two of the no, Republicans... I, I <laughs> Go ahead. 
Well, I just think that they're, that those are going to be the sticking points, right? How big the bill is, how to pay for that bill, and what the, what the definition of infrastructure is. And so um, when you go back to uh, the painful, how long it took, I was part of that process and so was uh, Representative uh, Congressman uh, Kennedy. That was a hard, long process. And to go back and to strip some of that is going to be very difficult for Republicans. But I do remain optimistic because this this has been done in the past. And I think that this is how, this is how bills should be run. You debate them and make sure that you do not allow perfect to be the enemy of a good win. You're going to have to give some up on both sides, but uh, America needs a good infrastructure plan. And that means that you're going to have to make some concessions and then at least get something that you want on the table. I do wonder, Congressman, how much you think these new, this group of 10, these new negotiations are about letting, what about, about the White House and Senator Schumer, the leader of the Democrats, the majority leader, letting Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin do everything they can to get a bipartisan deal and exhaust that so that then they can say, look, uh, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, we tried. You got to join us now and pass this with just 50 votes plus the vice president. Look, Dick, I, look, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, and I hope they're successful. I hope they can get 10 Republicans on board. I hope they're able to find a 10 Republicans that will come on board and embrace what a Democratic majority actually has and and the efforts there that, so that this bill is robust enough to address the challenges our country is confronting. Again, I think there's comments from a number of Republican senators, Ron Johnson uh, amongst them, that cast serious doubt on that. That being said, no one expected that this was going to be easy, right? The legislative process is hard, and you've got Democratic control of government by a margin of exactly zero. So you need every vote. And if you've got senators there that are saying, hey, we need to go down this process, you need to go down that process. But we are seeing the pushback there from the progressives, again, which I think everybody expected was going to happen. We're just in it now, and it's a hard spot. It's a spot that I'd rather be in than the alternative. All right. Two of the best. Former representatives Mia Love of Utah and Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts, thanks to both of you. Good to see you again. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up, another, oh, I'm sorry, another infrastructure issue. Congressional negotiators are dealing with high-speed Internet, and for many, it's not an issue. But about a third of this nation, a third of the American people, have lived through this pandemic without access to the Internet. Now, President Biden's proposed infrastructure bill is aiming to provide every home with reliable high-speed broadband by 2030. CNN's Miguel Marquez takes a look at what that might mean for those who currently go without. Jaden, Jackson, and Kaylin, when the pandemic hit, broadband for these students essential. We needed it for everything. I needed it for all of their schools. I needed it for Zoom meetings. She was paying a hundred bucks a month for poor service. 44% of homes here in Cleveland have no high-speed internet, says a 2018 report from the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. And the White House says some 30 million Americans live in areas where broadband infrastructure isn't good enough. These neighborhoods uh, don't have uh, the right infrastructure. Alvarez and Digital C, a Cleveland nonprofit focused on providing fast and cheap internet for residents like Melanie Williams. This device right here can do 10 gigabits, uh, 10 gigabits per second of uh, throughput. Digital C is delivering ultra high speed internet at a very low cost to those needing it most. Since the pandemic, I had to become a, 
a homeschool teacher all day. So, uh, you know, that stopped me from working. Today, with Digital C service and help from the school, Williams pays zero for high-speed internet that works for everyone. One of our hottest sellers. Monica Malik is running her own business from home. It helps me with my orders and helps me to reach out to customers and for them to get in contact with me faster. Today, she pays about $19 a month for Digital C's high-speed internet, keeping her business up and running. And you two are fine. Okay, just do what you do. Cleveland's Ashbury Senior Community Computer Center trains and educates students to seniors, everything from job searches to doctor visits. When the pandemic was in full force, our seniors couldn't get out and go to the doctor. So if they didn't have internet connectivity, then they could not take advantage of the technology with telehealth. Thank you for calling Greenlight. This is Matt. How can I help you? What about where high-speed internet is plentiful? Rural Wilson, North Carolina, near the tech hub of Raleigh-Durham, built its own municipal internet system called Greenlight in 2008. Well, you know, used to, number one was, did you have sewer? Number two was, did you have county water? And it right on down the line. Now I think that the broadband internet has jumped in front. Stone and his partner, Robbie Brown, developing home sites as fast as they can, they sell before they're finished. And the builder will only build them if. And the first question he asked was their high-speed internet, as in green light. And it's not just home building. We are standing in the middle of the old herring drugstore built in 1885. Tech consultant Bill O'Boyle is bringing lots of higher paying jobs to Wilson. Jobs that wouldn't be possible without high speed, affordable internet. 51 employees today. Correct. How many in a month, in three months, in a year? We tend, intend to be uh, about 75 by the end of this year, and we want to do about 125 in the next 18 to 24 months. O'Boyle's consulting business booming so much, he's refurbishing a second downtown Wilson building that sat vacant for years. What was this? This used to be an auto parts warehouse for many decades. And uh, it will be just as modern and advanced as any other tech space you'd see in larger markets. A huge investment for this small city a decade ago, paying off massively today. If you are a small community and you don't have these capacities, then the job market could be moving away from you. Fast, cheap, reliable broadband, the bedrock of the new global digital economy. And now, look, the pandemic put a very fine point on why all Americans need access to broadband internet, proper broadband internet. And the administration says if they have a hundred billion bucks that they could close those gaps in the rural areas and urban areas by 2030. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. Millions of doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine possibly about to expire. Could they go to waste with so many around the world desperate for a shot? lead, Johnson & Johnson has a shelf-life problem with its COVID vaccine. The vaccines are only good for three months, and millions of doses are sitting unused in the United States. On top of that, some states say federal rules will not let the, them donate those shots to other places in need. A plan to possibly redistribute this oversupply is under review, as Dr. Fauci warns of yet a new variant spreading quickly, as CNN's Amara Walker reports. 
we don't want to let happen in the United States what is happening currently in the UK, where you have a troublesome variant essentially taking over as the dominant variant. Growing concern that the more transmissible Delta variant first identified in India could fuel new surges among unvaccinated people in the United States. If you have states where vaccination rates are lower, uh, they are still vulnerable, especially with this new Delta variant, which is even more infectious. The Delta variant already accounts for 60% of new cases in the UK and may be more severe, according to British public health officials. Dr. Anthony Fauci pleading with the public to get both vaccine doses now. We cannot declare victory prematurely because there are still a substantial proportion of people have not been vaccinated. The White House is calling June a pivotal month of action. Lower vaccine demand could mean hundreds of thousands of shots going to waste. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine warning 200,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will expire by the end of the month. Officials in Arkansas saying they have so many unused doses, they've stopped ordering the J&J vaccine. In a statement to CNN, Johnson & Johnson says it's working to extend the shelf life of the vaccine, which currently lasts up to three months in a refrigerator. As more Americans are traveling, the CDC has updated travel guidance to 120 countries for the vaccinated and unvaccinated. 33 additional countries now at level one, the lowest risk category, including Iceland, Israel, Singapore and South Korea. Meanwhile, a battle pitting the Texas and Florida Republican governors against major cruise lines who use ports in their states. The governor's banning proof of vaccines, but the cruise ships are requiring vaccines for passengers. Texas is open 100 percent, and we want to make sure that you have the freedom to go where you want without limits. Now, Jake, health officials are warning states with lower vaccination rates are vulnerable to surges, especially with this new Delta variant. Georgia, where we are, is actually among the states with the lowest vaccination rates, along with Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Now, here at this walk-up vaccination site in the Inman Park neighborhood of Atlanta, the organizers tell me, yes, they have been seeing lower demand over the past several weeks. It's probably because uh, they live in an area where most people have been vaccinated. And so they are now in the middle of shifting strategy to find a way to reach the population that has yet to be vaccinated. Jake. All right, Amber, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, Fauci told CNN today that the FDA is reviewing now if the expiration date of the J&J vaccine can be extended or if not, if unused doses can be redistributed elsewhere. But is there still a chance, a good chance that many of these doses are going to go to waste? I, th I think we're going to see uh, certain percentage of doses go to waste. I mean, right now we're hearing hopefully it's a small percentage, but it's kind of a remarkable thing to think about, Jake, in the context of this year about the, these vaccines obviously being so important. And now we're at the point where demand has obviously uh, been outstripped by supply. So that that was always going to be expected because you weren't going to get it exactly right. But now I think the objective is to try and decrease the amount that's going to be unused. You remember with Pfizer even, Jake, uh, initially it was a certain amount of cold storage and they said we could actually shorten the cold storage time. They, they may come up with strategies to try and extend the shelf life of Johnson & Johnson and possibly get some of these doses to COVAX, the world organization, to distribute this to other countries. Just to give you context, about 140 million doses uh, administered. 
total, 11 million of them have been in Johnson & Johnson, so about 8% overall. So it's not a huge percentage, but mm-hmm. important nonetheless. Yeah, and one of the reasons why the numbers are going down in terms of how many people are being vaccine, vaccinated every day is because of vaccine skepticism. Some of it, not all of it, but some of it fe- uh, fed by just completely lunatic conspiracy theories. Take a look at this moment from a doctor, a certified physician, who testified at an Ohio State House Health Committee hearing and, and talked about the COVID vaccine in, in unhinged ways. Take a listen. What is it that's actually being transmitted that's causing all of these things? Is it a combination of the protein, which now we're finding has a metal attached to it? I'm sure you've seen the pictures all over the Internet of people who've had these shots, and now they're magnetized. They can put a key on their forehead. It sticks. They can put spoons and forks all over them, and they can stick. All right, I'm just going to do a test right now. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm fully vaccinated. Here's This is a metal pen. Nope, not magnetic. Now, this doctor used that crazy theory to argue against legislation to allow proof of vaccinations in Ohio, regardless of that legislation. I mean, what do you make of this? I, I'm never going to fully understand this, Jake. I mean, you know, it's it predates this pandemic that the, these types of conspiracy theories. Uh, I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past. I get when people uh, advocate crazy things in order to sell something. She has a book. Just say no to vaccines. Maybe that's it. There is no evidence of this. And let's not equivocate. Uh, there is no uh, microchip or tracking device or some sort of other product that's attached to these vaccines. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just it's very it's it's harmful when you look overall at vaccine skepticism. But one thing I will tell you is that she is probably preaching to an audience that already sort of believes what she says. I don't think she's convincing people that these are harmful. To take a look, Jake, overall at just vaccine acceptance in the country. I find this data really interesting. We've been talking about it since the beginning. So there's about, you know, now 66% who are absolutely saying, yes, I'll get it. I've already gotten it or I'm in line. Uh, the, the yellow line is that wait and see, that movable middle, which has come down. It was over 40% at one point, so it's below 20% now. But it's that red line that we're talking about here, Jake, with what we just heard from that doctor in Ohio. 7% of people say only if required. 13% that make up that red line say absolutely no way, no how. But, but why, though? Some of it is because of exactly people hearing stuff like that. And again, it's just preaching to the choir. But another part is, you know, people do have other reasons. You know, they, they can't take time off. They think that there's going to be a, a, a copay or something involved. So there's all these different reasons. What you just saw there obviously does not help. Yeah, to say the least. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. In our national lead, COVID infections among migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border are just one reason that many more are dying this year compared to 2020 as they make this deadly trek to the United States. The surge of migrants is expected to get worse. CNN's Rosa Flores went to the U.S.-Mexico border to get a reality check. We should warn you, some of what's in her report you might find disturbing. This is the end of the American dream for this man. He has a Mexican voter's card who authorities believe crossed the border on a raft, walked for five days, and then ran out of water. His arms scratched by the brush. And for this woman... She's only 24 years old. Authorities say she drowned on the Rio Grande and had been in the water for three to five days. Her body is so gruesome, we can only show you her clothes. 
They are two of more than 1,500 migrants who died on the Texas border since Dr. Corrine Stern started tracking the deaths after joining the Webb County Medical Examiner's Office in 2007. Majority are heat stroke, hyperthermia, or heat stroke and dehydration. She tracks migrant deaths across these 12 South Texas counties and says this year has been deadlier than recent years. Typically, our busiest months are July and August, and we're not even there yet. Last year, by this time, 45 migrants had died on the border. This year, that number has nearly tripled to at least 128. And 30%, says Dr. Stern, tested positive for COVID, and in some cases, considered a contributing factor in the deaths. Saying this as a physician, there is a safer way to do it than coming across the border. Despite the deadly dangers, the flow of migrants is on track to surpass the 2019 crisis, the last time a migrant surge occurred, mostly due to poverty and violence in Latin America. In May alone, border authorities encountered around 180,000 migrants on the southwest border. The current surge, in part driven by the misconception among migrants that the Biden administration was allowing migrant families with young children into the country. Border Patrol's Laredo sector uses horse units to rescue migrants from some of the most remote locations. How dangerous is this terrain? Um, dangerous. It, it, it's very dangerous. According to Border Patrol Deputy Chief Carl Landrum, more than half of the nearly 8,000 migrant rescues conducted nationally have happened here. To gear up for the most dangerous and deadly months of the year. So you can see here the uh, actual mobile beacon right there. This sector is deploying 13 beacons like these to help migrants call for help. This just takes it to a whole nother level, much more efficient. It's all solar powered. It's never going to run out of power. And it's very visible it's very from visible. different locations. Yeah, Those beacons coming too late for some migrants. Why do you think they would put carpet on the bottom of their shoes? To erase their footprint. Exactly. One by one, the items of both the man and the woman are documented. All are clues about who they are and the dreams that were cut short. And even if you say to yourself, oh, it's worth my life, I'm willing to risk my life, think about your family. And Jake, I just got off the phone with Dr. Stern. She says that since we shot the video for that story that you just watched, another four migrants have died, bringing the total to 132. Mm. Jake. Just awful. Rosa Flores on the border in Laredo. Thank you so much for that report. Vice President Harris is taking some heat after her first trip abroad as vice president, and not only from the people you'd expect it from. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 